0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Morrison runs into the crony from the Larkin Studios at Dempsey's Bar. Morrison is down to what Cindy proudly calls his fighting weight, 167. He works out three times a week and looks as fit as a whipcord. The crony from Larkin, by comparison, looks something that the cat dragged in. Crony. Lord, how'd you ever stop? I'm locked into this damn habit tighter than Tilly. The crony stubs the cigarette out with a real revulsion and drains a scotch. Morrison looks at him speculatively and then takes a small white business card out of his wallet. He puts it on the bar between them. You know, He says, These guys changed my life. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, your current host, and I'm back with a review of another Stephen King short story from the Night Shift Anthology. This week, I'm taking a look at Quitters Incorporated, one of the four stories in the collection that had not been published previously. It's a story about Dick Morrison, a New York ad exec who's stuck in the work grind. Despite his round the clock work schedule, things aren't going well for Morrison at the Morton ad agency. Things aren't so great at home either, where Morrison finds his wife slightly irritating, and he tries to forget his mentally retarded son, whom Morrison considers only half a human being. To deal with this stress, Morrison has been overeating, and he's a chain smoker. But a run-in with an old coworker and college friend at an airport gives Morrison a new perspective. This friend, Jimmy McCann, was on the same downward spiral as Morrison until he discovered Quitters Incorporated, a company in Manhattan on 46th Street, that helped him stop smoking for good. This single act turned Jimmy's life around. His marriage was happy. He was promoted to executive vice president of his company, all because he gave up cigarettes. Jimmy is so high on Quitters Incorporated and their 98% success rate that he gives Morrison a card as well. But when he enrolls in the program, Dick finds out their methods are extreme. His case manager, Vic Donetti, describes Quitters Incorporated as a pragmatic agency. They're not going to preach to you about not smoking. There's no hypnosis or gimmicks. It's just very simple. You will be under constant surveillance. And if you're caught smoking, you or your family get tortured or beaten. The severity of the punishment increases each time you smoke, and on your 10th occurrence being caught, well, at that point, you're considered one of the 2% who fail the program, and they kill you. The bulk of the 21-page story follows Morrison as he tries to quit smoking cold turkey, knowing that for a first offense, his wife will be put in a small room and tortured with electric shocks. And slowly, Dick's perspective on life changes. As he resists the nicotine not for himself, but for his wife and son, he starts to appreciate them more. As King writes in the story, Dick realizes, quote, Love is the most pernicious drug of all. Let the romantics debate its existence. Pragmatists accept it and use it, end quote. Of course, the physical and mental addiction to cigarettes is a hard one, and Dick's program has its transgressions. And the suspense of the novel comes from if Dick can resist his cravings, or if his need for nicotine outweighs his love for his wife and son. Now, if that story sounds familiar to you, this was the most memorable and popular segment from the Stephen King anthology movie Cat's Eye, with James Woods in the Dick Morrison role. It's a movie I knew very well and remembered clearly when reading the story, though I haven't seen the movie in well over a decade. The humor with which Morrison's torment is shown is what I expected when reading the story. But King's original prose is far harder than that film adaptation. The story on the page is told fairly straight. King intends the reader to be horrified at the thought of Morrison's mentally retarded son having his arms broken, never even understanding why he's being hurt. Now, that's not to say the story isn't without some humor. Quitters Incorporated, as described in the book, is certainly a satirical look at recovery programs. It was founded by a mob group who made their money in massage parlors and slot machines, and when mafioso Mort Three Fingers Minnelli was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1970, he endowed Quitters Incorporated with family funds and the family methods. It's an innately ironic idea that the mafia will help you by hurting you, epitomized in case manager Donetti's line of how the company is less interested in profit and more interested in helping their fellow man. And, of course, the tax breaks Quitters Incorporated provides. But the story is as mean-spirited as Donetti's methods. We don't get to know much about Dick's wife and son. The entire story is told through Dick's point of view, so we initially see the wife as a bit of a bore, and we know Dick doesn't like his son who's been sent away to live in a special needs boarding school. More, Dick's every thought is cynical and self-centered. When he encounters Jimmy at the airport, he's not happy for his old college friend's success and well-being. He's jealous to the core, wishing he didn't feel so one-upped. When visiting Quitters Incorporated, Dick is completely resistant to the program, thinking it won't work before he even knows what it is, and not really caring that it won't. Nothing in Dick's character explains why he would go to Quitters Incorporated the first time, let alone the second when this program really begins. We aren't allowed to like Dick or even to understand him, so it was savvy of King to not have the first repercussion of smoking be delivered upon Dick. This guy might deserve a beating. But Dick's wife and child, being the blank slates they are... We don't want to see them tortured. Of course, King doesn't single Dick out as a, well, as a dick. When he interacts with his co-workers, they're as jaded and as cynical as he is. They don't believe he'll quit. They make no bones about it. This isn't just a comment on a single guy, smokers, or even ad execs. It's King lampooning the world of businessmen and their cutthroat attitude. Now, I'll give King some points. He's progressive. This view of Manhattan yuppies was everywhere in the 80s but King was doing this back in 1978. More, this story's sardonic look at working professionals, plus the lack of any supernatural horrors, has caused this story to be classified as a Richard Bachman tale by authors Stanley Wider, Christopher Golden, and Hank Wagner in their reference book The Complete Stephen King Universe. I talked a bit about this last week when I reviewed The Ledge, another story that the authors lumped in with Bachman's work. Now, I've only done one full review on a book that King published under the Bachman name. That book was Rage, and you can hear that review, as well as my analysis of the Bachman persona in the Books and Nachos archives. But I've read all of Bachman's books, and I can see why these authors would want to lump The Ledge and Quitters Incorporated in with the likes of The Running Man and Roadwork. Dick's motivations and views certainly do feel self-centered and self-important, kind of an echo of those of Charlie Decker and Rage. And the recurring motif that pragmatic solutions, not emotional ones, are the most effective is a hard-edged thesis that would seem fitting with Bachman's early works, The Long Walk and The Running Man. But while I was willing to leave it as a toss-up on the ledge, I actively disagree with those authors' classification of Quitters Incorporated as a Bachman work. If you take any Stephen King book that has no supernatural elements, only human monsters, and call it Bachman instead of King, I think that's too broad. To me, Bachman is the epitome of an author's cruel nature to his characters. We'll get to more Bachman books in time, but when I think of the end of Roadwork, or the end of Thinner, I think of those as the ultimate downer endings. Even Rage and The Long Walk, for their slightly happier endings, aren't upbeat tales. Here, for all the bitterness in Dick's mind, the mood is a more obvious satire and a true exploration of ideas. This is a story about Dick's redemption, like his friend Jimmy, as Dick goes through the program, he becomes a nicer guy, he starts to love his son, and we presume he's on the same path to success that helped his own college chum. That, to me, is a King story. I know how Bachman's take of this would have gone. It probably would have had Dick give up his, quote, retarded son, unquote, who Dick thought of as only being worth half a real human being, in exchange for a cigarette. And then maybe he might have also offered up his wife for a pack. No. This story is grounded, but it's not bitter. Dick is a cynical asshole. Donetti refers to himself as a pragmatist while he tortures and pummels those who disobey, but the result of this story is a King heart that opens and softens, not a Bachman heart that closes and hardens. And I can find no reference for when this story was actually written. It could have been written just before its publication in Night Shift, or it could have been one of those college writing assignments King had stored in his trunk for a decade. Certainly, King's pre-carry writings do have more of a Bachman feel to them, but this story, with its characterizations and pace, feel more to me like a mid-to-late 70s King story. Judging by writing style plus tone, I guess it's one of the newest in the collection, and that to me certainly keeps it clearly in the King camp. But that brings me to the story's two downfalls. First, the story spans more than a year of Dick's life, but being only 21 pages long, we get much of his life in montage. There are specific scenes of Dick craving a cigarette, finding a forgotten pack in a desk drawer or in his car, but overall, we barely get a glimpse at Morrison's addiction. I know that King can make us feel what a character is going through. He did that in The Shining with Jack's craving for a drink. Here, this feels like we're being told Dick needs a cigarette, but I never feel it. And for the family situation, Dick's relationship with his wife never seems rocky. And while he starts to love his son, the character is barely explored. It's almost too short a story to effectively tell its message. Second, I also think this story demonizes smoking. And cigarettes aren't heroin. Smoking a cigarette won't harden your heart to your mentally challenged son, nor will it make you a less productive member at your office. That quitting smoking can fix your job, your marriage, that it'll be a magic cure and a path to success is ridiculous, and I can't tell if King is being intentionally silly and that this is an extension of the story's satirical themes, or if it's supposed to be believed. It certainly wouldn't have been a popular opinion to tout in 1978, when you could still smoke in hospitals, in workplaces, and on airplanes. I imagine in the 21st century that this idea might go over a bit better, though, at least with the popular American view demonizing smoking and smokers alike. But the way the story is written, with Dick viewing non-smokers as smug assholes but wanting to be one of the smug assholes himself, makes me think that in this story, the two do equate. More, that this story was written by a smoker who's trying to break the habit. I think this better life is King's vision of a light at the end of the tunnel. But don't take those two minor quibbles as me not liking the story. It's a fun story that raises real ethical questions about a Machiavellian attitude towards self-improvement. I find it an interesting conundrum the way Dick has to gamble the likelihood of being caught smoking with the torment that will be delivered among his wife and child. More, do the ends justify the means here? If Dick can give up cigarettes, is that worth putting his entire family in severe physical danger? It's an interesting conundrum to me. Certainly what Quitters Incorporated did was illegal, but was it wrong or simply extreme? After all, they do have a 98% success rate. If you compare the lives they've saved versus the lives they've taken, pragmatically, they've probably done good, right? Well, anyway, it's a fun debate to have. There is one irony in the story, however. While it paints such a rosy picture for those who stop smoking, King himself, the author, continues to smoke. He said in his introduction to Night Shift back in 1978 that he started smoking unfiltered cigarettes when he was 18, and by the time of Night Shift's publication, he'd cut back to a low-nicotine, low-tar brand, and he hopes to quit completely. However, while King has been able to kick alcohol, cocaine, and whatever other substances he was on, the cigarettes are King's constant companion. Even after being hit by a truck that nearly took his life, he allows himself three cigarettes a day. I guess he's lucky he never signed a pact that would have put Tabitha in a room to suffer electric shocks. And King would revisit sensationalizing the idea of quitting smoking in much later short fiction, such as the 1993 story The Ten O'Clock People, one that I can't wait to get to, though it will probably be years before I do. And Quitters Incorporated also fits in neatly with some of the other tales here in Night Shift, with the tale of a character fighting for love against a violent crime lord, this tale pairs very well with The Ledge, the story from Night Shift I reviewed last week. The two stories were put together in King's anthology movie Cat's Eye, which I mentioned earlier in the show and which you can hear Stuart Jacob and I review at nowplayingpodcast.com as we continue to review the more than 20 movie adaptations based on the short stories from Night Shift. And then... I'll be back here at booksandnachos.com next week with my review of another tale from the collection, Graveyard Shift, preparing for the next movie we're reviewing over at Now Playing. I'll talk to you then, and in the meantime, please remember to support your local bookstore, or else Donetti's goons may have to pay a visit to your wife. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. 2014 all rights reserved and no part of this show may be reproduced repurposed or redistributed without the written permission of venganza media incorporated